have a sense what God would have me to do. All right? So, Father, I thank you this morning that you are an amazing, gracious, loving God that we heard this morning, you're filled with compassion, that you're willing to answer prayer. We're going to hear that today. Lord, I pray this morning that regardless of the context in which we're coming into this place, regardless of the challenges we're faced with, maybe the difficulties, the sorrows, there's medical issues, there's relational issues, there's financial issues. Lord, regardless of those issues, today we want to hear your voice. You are the ultimate answer to every problem. And Father, I pray as we hear what you have to say to us personally, that we would leave here encouraged, strengthened, challenged, maybe even warned, but we would leave here knowing a sense of clear direction, what you would have us to do in the days to come. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. You may be seated. I'm going to have you turn in your Bibles to an Old Testament book, Second Chronicles. We're going to look at a very uh, familiar passage, but I'm going to sh- hopefully share some things you may not have, not have considered about this passage. You know, this past week, someone from our church family sent me an article from the Globe and Mail entitled, An Examination of the Decline of Western Society. How many go, that kind of sounds ominous, you know, like, wow, there's some difficult things that we're experiencing as a culture today. And they were basically saying that a lot of us are not dealing with reality and many people are struggling. They talked about the financial pressures, the rise and the cost of housing, you know, the decline of possibly good salaries, uh, the rising deaths from drug overdoses, the consumption of pornography. They even talked about how people are almost sedated when they go into gambling in places where, you know, they they become disoriented. Some of them even forget to use the restroom. I mean, just a lot of things are happening in our culture today. And so the end of the article, there was basically a challenge to reject individualism, materialism and embrace a a value of of living more in community, which really sounded great. But here's what I was thinking as I was reading the article. They were really not giving us a vehicle to get to that destination. You know, isn't that true? A lot of times we hear the problems and so often what we have is people trying to deal with the symptoms of those problems. And yet what is the root issue of all of these problems that our culture is actually estranged, and I'll use a different term, disconnected from God himself. And I believe that that is at the root of much of the fruit of what we're seeing in our culture today. And what we're seeing is very destructive and damaging to, uh, to really the health of relationships and just the health of our sense of happiness and well-being. So really the root issue is, I mean the root problem I think is somehow reconnecting with Almighty God. And so I've entitled this message, Turning to God. And when we turn to Him, I believe that God begins to deal with some of these issues that we're struggling with as a culture. Now the pattern has been repeated over and over again. And and we see it with, with Israel, how often they had walked away from God. Isn't that true? And we see this continuous pattern of the struggle that they had. And so when we're looking at the book of Chronicles, they're going over, and I've, I've, I don't know if you've recognized this, but when you're reading First and Second Samuel and you're reading First uh, and Second Chronicles, you're repeating similar material. As a matter of fact, the area that I'm going to speak from in Second Chronicles chapter six and seven is actually framed in First Kings chapter eight. 
and yet there's a few little additions. And the reason being is that these writers that wrote those books wrote at different times. First of all, you need to understand First and Second Kings were written during the period of the exile. Okay, they were actually, the nation of Israel was brought into exile. They had, you know, forsaken God and God had warned them for hundreds of years. And finally, they suffered the consequences of their sin. And so the burning issue in the hearts of God's people in the exile was simply, why had God allowed people more wicked than themselves to destroy their way of life? Why were they, in a sense, in exile? Using their own history, the writer then points out Israel's unfaithfulness to God as the reason for their exile. So the whole book is really an argument pointing that out. They had failed to keep their covenant with God, and though God had been faithful, God, I mean, God had been faithful, they had been unfaithful. Okay, you follow? So now they were suffering some of the conditions that were framed in the book of Leviticus. So they're a covenant people. By the way, you and I need to understand something. When you and I come to Christ, we come into covenant with God. We become a covenant people, just like they were. The chronicler, however, is writing at a different time with a different purpose in mind. It's a very theological book. He's writing after the exile. The people have now come back into the land. They have been restored. They have built a brand new temple, okay? And you know all of this history because we read about it uh, in Second Chronicles, and we read about it uh, in Nehemiah and Ezra and some of those books of the Bible a little later on, what's going on there. And the, diff- the question that's being raised is different. And here's the question. The burning issue was the question of continuity with the past. In other words, is God still interested in us? And this is a question that people ask after they've messed up. Because, you know, when you've really messed up with God, you're wondering, can God ever do anything with me after this? I've kind of blown it, you know? And so isn't it true after failure that we wonder if God still cares? Like, why would even God mess with me? Because, you know, I've, I've just done so many stupid things. I've done so many sinful things. And I've suffered so many consequences. And I feel like my life is destroyed and it's a mess. And so, is God going to give up on me? Is God finished with me? It's a great question. And the chronicler is basically trying to answer that question. So, they're, they're, they're basically saying, are God's promises before our failure still in effect? In other words... These were the issues facing the people that the chronicler was writing to. Now, I think the main concern with the book of Chronicles, and probably the key idea, is this idea that when you and I need to seek God. Okay, that's the point. And when you and I put God first in our life, the chronicler is going to keep showing you good things are going to happen, ultimately. Now, not maybe initially, but ultimately, things are going to start working out. In 2 Chronicles, we come to the retelling of the dedication of Solomon's temple. And they have to understand they've got a brand new temple. So this group have returned. So what, what does the author have in mind as he tells of a former story of former glory? And I think the reason is both to encourage and also to warn. Okay? 
lot of times we have to learn from history. There's things we can learn from history that can encourage us to do the right thing and also to warn us from doing the wrong thing. That's one of the reasons why we read the Bible. So we read these stories and we go, oh, they have no bearing on my life. No, we read the stories and we go, oh, I see that so-and-so did this and this was the result of what they did. And when people obeyed God, you can see that relatively speaking, good things started happening in their lives. And then you can see sometimes that when people disobeyed God, you could see the negative things that began to happen in their life. And yes, I know there are exceptions to this and we can't make this a foolproof, you know, I do this, I do A, B, and C and God's going to do X, Y, and C. I get all of that. I know that there's some things that God does in there. There's elements of suffering and God has a purpose and all of that. But generally speaking, This is the way it works in the Scriptures. And I think we all get that sense from reading it. So in our text today, I want to look at three elements. Well, there are three elements. You know, there's the dedication of the temple. Then there's what God did when they dedicated the temple, how His presence came to them. And then finally, God's response to Solomon's prayer. Now, I'm going to skip one of those elements. I'm only going to talk about two of them today. See what I'm doing? I'm moving along. I'm... I'm shortening my sermon already, so I didn't go down to point number two. So we're going to look at two elements. And and basically, in the dedication of the temple, I want to look, first of all, at something very powerful in our life. I want to talk about the effectiveness of prayer. I want to point out to you that when Solomon prayed, God answered his prayer in a very powerful way. And you and I need to have a confidence that we're not wasting our time when we're praying. So when we ask our church family to come forward for three days to pray and fast and seek God's face, I'm going to argue with you today that you're not wasting your time. That's probably the best investment of time you're going to make in 2019. You're actually setting the stage for what's going to happen. I'm convinced that whatever you and I settle with God in the spiritual arena, God eventually plays out in the natural arena. So you know, if we're, if we're messing up in the spiritual life, it's eventually going to affect us in the natural life. But if you and I are crying out to God and seeking God's face and hearing His voice and trying to do His will, that's going to play out in the natural arena. Okay? So you're, you're setting the stage for how 2019 is actually going to play out. Now, when Solomon, what Solomon prayed for, he was asking for God to dwell among them in the temple. Isn't that a great prayer? He was calling God, the transcendent God, whom the universe cannot contain, to dwell very specifically in the building that they had built to house the presence of God. And God answered that prayer and came down and filled the temple with his presence. Isn't that beautiful? And I believe that this situation is actually a precursor to explain to us how God, who's transcendent, eventually comes down and dwells in a human body. And Jesus then talks about he himself, he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it back up. And all the Jews thought he was talking about a building that took years to build and Jesus was actually talking about his body. And then later on the Apostle Paul begins to talk about the temple of God is actually the church, the people of God. And actually he he individualizes it and says that our physical body now becomes the temple of the Most High God and God lives inside of us. That's a very profound thought. A transcendent God whom the universe cannot contain living inside of you and me. Isn't that amazing? 
That's a powerful thing. And we see this enacted in history on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came down and filled each disciple with the Holy Spirit. How powerful is that? So now we hear Solomon interceding on behalf of his people. He's almost like a high priest. He stands up here. We get the scene in 2 Chronicles chapter 6 and verse 12. We'll pick up our story. I'm going to start moving through a lot of these verses now. It says, Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in front of the whole assembly, and he spread out his hands. And then he says, Lord, the God of Israel, there's no God like you in heaven and in earth. In other words, all the other gods are not gods. Okay? You who keep your covenant of love... Now, some of you that are part of our church family, I talk about this Hebrew word, hesed. This is the word. You're the God who keeps this covenant of faithful love. It's a loyal love. It's a covenantal love. He says, with your servants who continue wholeheartedly in your way. So now he's, he's actually giving us a qualification. If God is going to keep his end of the bargain, which he does anyways... But he says, there's a part that you and I need to keep. We need to wholeheartedly walk with God. Don't just give God a part of our lives. You know, we're not just giving God a Sunday. We're giving God the essence of our being. We're giving God our hearts. We're giving God our lives. And we're making Him the center of our lives so that daily we get up and we worship God and we're making God the the central focal person of our lives. And then he goes on to say here, um, but... Will God really dwell on earth with humans? The heavens cannot contain you, how much less this temple I have built. So Solomon is aware of how great God is. He understands God is transcendent. He understands God is, you know, even the universe can't contain him. That's an amazing thought. And then he says, May your eyes be open toward this temple day and night, this place of which you said you would put your name here, or put your name there. May you hear the prayer of your servant that prays, towards this place. And then we hear a number of issues that Solomon brings up. And in verse 22, he says, when anyone wrongs their neighbor and is required to take an oath. So now there's an assumption made, okay? We're supposed to do the right thing, but how many are already getting a sense that we're not always going to keep the law perfectly? Anybody get that sense? Because he's basically saying, well, hey, when we mess up, God, we want you to hear our prayer for mercy. And don't you get a sense that when Jesus was teaching us how to pray, He said, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. In other words, there's an assumption made by Jesus that you and I will sin. How many go, yeah, that's probably right, Pastor. I have committed a few sins once in a while, right? And if we say we have not sinned, we're we're liars because, you know, all of us fail at some point. So he's going, when anyone wrongs their neighbor and is required to take an oath and they come and swear the oath before your altar in this temple, then hear from heaven and act. In other words, you are going to be the ultimate appeal, God. And they they say, judge between your servants, condemning the guilty and bringing down on their heads what they have done and vindicating the innocent by treating them in accordance with your innocence. How many know that ultimately justice comes from God? It's not going to come from human beings. We've got to get that in our minds. And it doesn't always come on our schedule. How many know that that's true? 
you know, a lot of times people are getting away with things, and it irks us maybe sometimes. We're, we're like the psalmist, you know, Psalm 73. He says, when I, when I saw how the wicked were prospering, it drove me crazy. He said, my feet almost slipped. But then he said, I got into the house of God, and I realized their end. I recognized, you know, people can sin and think, you know, they can sit in church and continue on as if nothing happened. But let me just warn us all today that God is the one who's evaluating our lives. And unless we really get our hearts right with God and we we repent, which means turning away from our wicked ways, you know, God's going to deal with that. And we need to understand that. No, we're not fooling anybody. We're certainly not fooling God. Well, we might fool a lot of people, but we won't fool God, okay? And sometimes I think we deceive ourselves. Solomon uh, goes on to pray in verse 24, when your people Israel have been defeated by an enemy, and then he explains why they were defeated, because they have sinned against you. And when they have turned their back, and when they have turned back and give praise to your name, praying and making supplication before you in this temple, then hear from heaven and forgive the sins of the people Israel and bring them back to the land you gave them and their ancestors. Well, this had already happened by the time the chronicler had wrote this. This had all been fulfilled. So now he's reiterating history. He's retelling the story. And they could see that this is exactly what happened. And that's very strong argument for the scriptures, right? That, you know, their temple was destroyed, but then it was rebuilt. And then they sinned again, and it was destroyed. Isn't that amazing to you? How many think this is kind of amazing? These things actually happen historically. It's very powerful. It should make us aware that these things do happen. And then he closes his prayer with an appeal to remember the covenant made, not with Moses, but with David. And what is interesting is that when First Kings says it, it makes its appeal based on their covenant with Moses. Now in Chronicles, it makes it based on David. The difference being between the two renderings is that in Second Chronicles 7, 12 through 15 is left out of the First Kings passage. And I think that's fascinating because we're going to look at that text in a moment. And I think they're probably the most familiar text in the book of Second Chronicles. It's the one we quote so often. We'll see that. So now, after this dedication, and God's Spirit comes down and fills the temple, there's a time lapse between when Solomon prays and when God answers. And this is what's fascinating to me. And I never saw this before. In Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 11, it says, When Solomon had finished the temple of the Lord and the royal palace, and had succeeded in carrying out all that he had in mind to do in the temple of the Lord, in, and, in, and in his own palace, it says, the Lord appeared to him at night and said. So I want you to just think about this. The temple was now completed, and Solomon's palace. But what does that really mean? He's framing a time. So let's go back and read in Second Chronicles chapter 1, it says, Solomon, son of David, established himself firmly over his kingdom. So there's, there's two appearances to Solomon by God. This one is, the one we're going to talk about is the second, but this is the first one. In, in chapter 1 it says, the Lord was with him and made him exceedingly great. And it says, that night God appeared to Solomon and said, ask for whatever you want me to give you. And you know who he asked for. He asked for wisdom, did he not? And God says, because you've asked for wisdom, you didn't ask for the death of your enemies, you didn't ask for money, you didn't ask for long life, 
I'm giving all of it to you. Wow. Bonus. I mean, that's amazing. So God gave him all of it. So Solomon became the wisest man, the richest man. I mean, he had everything going for him. How many know Solomon had a lot going for him? Isn't this amazing? God heard his cry. He answered his prayer. He just blessed him to no end. It's great. Then Solomon goes about building the temple, and he starts it in the fourth year of his reign, and he completes it in the 11th year. And how many know that that's uh, seven years? It says, in the 11th year, in the month bull, the eighth month, the temple is filled in all of its details. According to its specifications, he spent seven years building it. Then we turn to the next chapter. And it says, it took Solomon 13 years, however, to complete the construction of his palace. Now, I don't know if Solomon finished the temple and then spent another 13 years building his palace, or he was building them concurrently. But I can say this, the palace was done in seven years, and it took the the palace 13 years. So obviously there's a time lapse there. You know, at the end of the palace building would be at least six years. Now, why am I bringing all this up? Because it says when God appeared to Solomon the second time, it was after he had built his palace. And I'm convinced that Solomon didn't wait to dedicate the temple after his palace was built. He dedicated it after the temple was built. Okay, so how many are getting an idea? There's a little time lapse here when Solomon prayed. And then it said, when I read it to you, it said after Solomon had built the temple and the palace, God appeared to him a second time. That's the point I'm trying to drive right now. Is everybody following that? Why am I saying all of that? Because Solomon's prayer and God's answer did not happen right away. And I'm going to argue this morning that Solomon's prayer, Solomon was in a good spot. Solomon had a revelation of God. Solomon wrote Proverbs. Solomon told us to fear God. He said, the fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of wisdom. So Solomon was in the right place spiritually. But Solomon didn't stay there. And when God appears to him the second time, Solomon is in a different place spiritually. Solomon does not end well, folks. That's the scary part. How can the smartest, the wisest man do so many stupid things? You ever thought about that? That tells you wisdom alone isn't going to keep you. It tells me that. As a matter of fact, he had moved away from God and he was living, and and, and the people now were now living what they would call the golden age. There was never a more prosperous time in the nation of Israel than under Solomon. But I'm going to say this, that the seeds of decay were sown under the kingdom of Solomon. And this is what happened. We need to go back in history a little bit and see how did the wisest man, a man who feared God, walk away and sow the seeds that later later led to the diminishment of his own personal life and of his kingdom? How did that happen? Good question, isn't it? So, look at Deuteronomy chapter 17 and verse 16. This is what was instructed to the kings. The king, moreover, must not acquire a great number of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more for them. For the Lord has told you not to go back that way again. 
He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of his law and taken from the Levitical priests. It is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and its decrees. And not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites or turn from the law to the right or to the left, and he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. So how many are getting that the kings had very specific instructions? Everybody see that? So what did not Solomon do then? He didn't do this. He did the exact opposite. Right? I'll tell you why. Look at 1 Kings chapter 10. Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. Wasn't supposed to do that. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses, which he kept at chariot cities and also with him in Jerusalem. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones and cedars as plentiful as sycamore fig trees in the foothills. It says, King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidians, Sidonians, and Hittites. And they were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love and he had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines and his wives led him astray. Now, I'm going to say something that you and I need to hear this. Because, you know, you read all this and go, man, Solomon, come on. You already know better, and you do the exact opposite of what God said. How did he get to that place? One, he was supposed to look at the law of God every single day. Come on, tell me now. If you're reading the law of God every day, Solomon, are you going to do these bad decisions? No. What can we learn? You say, well, that's Solomon. What can I learn from this? I need to spend every day in the Word of God. I need to be a daily consumer of God's Word so that I know what God thinks. I know the ways of God. I understand what is right, what is wrong, so that I can walk in the right way before God. And if I fail to do that, I may be tempted to do the wrong thing. Number two, I don't think it's wrong to acquire wealth. I think it's wrong to make that your goal. Are everybody following this? Because when you make acquiring wealth your goal, you're going to put that first in your life. And Jesus said it, not me. He said, you cannot serve God in money. You see, God has to be the pursuit of your life. And if finances come your way and you accumulate a lot of them, what you are now being given is a stewardship and a responsibility to use what God's giving you in the right way. But it can't be the goal. Does everybody see the difference? So some people, God's going to give them a lot of wealth. And it's not so that you and I, you know, live this ostentatious kind of lifestyle. But no, we're saying, no, I'm a steward. And I got to say, God, you're entrusting me with these resources. I'm going to use them wisely. Because I know that there's a subtle seduction to having that kind of wealth that could lead me to not trust you, God. And I start trusting in my earthly riches. And I start living for myself. And eventually I diminish my life. Because let's face it, you know, having things is nice, but not at the expense of losing out 
on our relationship with God and our relationships with people we love. You see? And that's what happened to Solomon. Now, let me move on. The second element is the response to our prayers by God. So we can see that Solomon prayed this amazing prayer, right? God, please come, fill the temple. And when we mess up God and we come to this place and we cry out to you, God, show mercy to us. And by the way, that's framed in the New Testament in verses like 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we don't go to a physical temple. We go to the person that the temple represents. We're going to the one who is the temple. We're going to God in us, Emmanuel, and we come to him and we confess to him. It's powerful. But let me move on to the response. So what is God about to say to Solomon? And I think it's really simple. Solomon, you're going in the wrong direction. And let me say something about warnings. You know, if you're about to go over a cliff and someone screams a warning and you awaken to your danger and don't go over the cliff, you're going to be very thankful. How many say that's true, right? You didn't see it. Somebody else knows what's ahead. You're about to you know, drive over the cliff or maybe the road drops down 40 feet. I've seen sinkholes that you know, all of a sudden go down 20 feet, you know. And if a person's driving along, you don't see what's ahead of you. You could drive right into the sinkhole and get killed. You know, aren't you glad somebody sees that and puts a barricade in front of it so that you don't go through it? Everyone goes, I thank God for that, right? You'd be thankful for that. And so we need to see warnings not as a negative thing. See, I think so often somebody's telling me what I should or shouldn't do, and we we get all indignant. I'm going, knock that stuff off. If somebody's warning you of an ever-present danger in front of you, and you heed that warning, you are saving your soul from a lot of heartache and pain in your life. See? And I think the Scriptures do warn us. You know, Paul said to the Ephesian elders, he says, don't you know how I lived among you? You know, and he says, I taught you with tears, warning you night and day. So he was not just teaching and instructing. He was also warning them to do certain things because he knew some of the dangers that are in this life. And I think sometimes we start living a very careless life and we don't understand that we're walking, you know, through this journey called life. It's, you know, I I love some of the analogies like John Bunyan's uh, Pilgrim's Progress where you know, there's all of these, you know, allegories and allusions to what's really happening in our world. Think of this journey as you and I are a Christian. We get into the Christian life and we're traveling towards our ultimate destination to be with forever with God. And there are dangers on this journey. And that's why we don't do it alone. That's why we do it in community. That's why we're aware that there's a battle going on and we're not fighting against flesh and blood. And the enemy's Uh, We're not ignorant of his devices, Paul says, and we recognize that there's tools that we have as Christians to fight. And one of them is the tool of forgiveness. Isn't that an amazing tool? How many think it's an amazing tool? Forgiveness. We won't even think of forgiveness as a tool, but it is a tool. So you and I don't have to live in bitterness and resentment and allow all that poison to get into our system. And then we become so embittered with life and we're angry with God and we're angry with people and we're blaming this person. God, deliver us from that stuff. 
And give us a forgiving spirit. And that we have the word of God. We have the shield of faith. And we recognize we're an amazing spiritual battle. We need to be aware of these things. So here it is. Solomon is going to get an answer. God appears to him the second time. But it's years later. Could be 13 years. Could be six years. Whatever it is. But it's later. And I want to just kind of break down here three things. One, the Lord's acceptance of Solomon's prayer of dedication. It's said in Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 12, The Lord appeared to him at night and said, I've heard your prayer, and I've chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifices. God said, okay, this is what it's going to be about. And by the way, the temple was a house of prayer. The temple was a place where we commune with God. Jesus got upset when the Israelites lost sight of that. He says, I have chosen and consecrated this temple so that that my name may be there forever and my eyes and my heart will always be there. And we see how God dramatically filled the presence. It says in 1 Kings chapter 8, when the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. And the reference to eyes and heart of Yahweh being connected to the temple is an unusual expression of the idea for the divine presence in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, the eyes and heart of God symbolize his concern, his watch and care over humanity. He sees people in distress. He has compassionate heart for their plight. And he has the power to intervene and deliver his people. As a matter of fact, I love that word has said, that has said love of God, because it's really speaking of God's delivering power. That God loves us so much, he redeems us, and he delivers us from the power of Satan and death and sin and all the rest of it. So, let me just move on here. Then we read of God's promises to Solomon and the people that he would hear their cry for deliverance when they had violated their covenant, and they could pray for mercy and God would answer their prayer. And then we read these verses. These are the famous verses, but it's in this context, now I'm going to read them. When I shut up the heavens so that there's no rain or command locusts to devour the land or send a plague among my people. Isn't that interesting? God's doing this. Now, why is God doing this? Because they had violated his covenant. So what God is saying to Israel, he said, listen, I'll be with you. I will defeat your enemies. I will prosper you. I will bless you. But if you turn your back on me, this is what's going to happen to you. That's exactly what happened to them. And then he says, but if, I love that if. It's a conjunction, right? If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Wow, what an amazing promise. Now I recognize that Israel is a unique people. This was a unique promise to the nation of Israel. But folks, let me encourage us. This is a principle. We need to understand this. We can't say, you know, well, you know, we're Canadians. If we just do this thing, then God will heal our land. Well, I think if we do these things, God will hear our prayer. And God will do some supernatural things. And God will hear the cry of people who are crying out to him because we read in the book of Proverbs, chapter 14 and verse 34, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin condemns any people. How many say that's true? And so if our nation, you know, 
knowing what it knows about our history and our past and how most of our forefathers had some sort of a Judeo-Christian ethic and understanding and many of them were God-fears and as a matter of fact, even our parliament buildings have, you know, scriptures etched on them. Isn't that an amazing thing? How many of that's amazing? This is the forefathers of our country. And even in this province of Alberta, who suffered under a Great Depression, and do you know Alberta was a have-not province? How many know that's true? And people struggled. And eventually, you know, many Bible colleges were started in the prairies because people were turning to God, crying out to God, and people were studying for ministry. But today that's not happening because we're so locked in to this prosperity that God brought as a result of our faithfulness, our fathers and forefathers' faithfulness to God. And now we're the beneficiaries of this prosperity. And we have allowed this to lead us away from God because we've put our trust in the wrong things. And now we are suffering. We're seeing all these negative things, the increase of crime, people abusing drugs, marriages being destroyed, and on and on it goes. And all the problems in our city. And now we're, you know, we think, oh, if I just get the right political leader in here. They're going to straighten this all up. Folks, let me tell you something. The real answer to the dilemma in this community and in our province and in our nation is a spiritual one. And you and I need to humble ourselves and cry out to God and ask for his mercy in this time and in our land so that God will heal the brokenness in our land, that people will turn away from their wicked ways and turn to Almighty God and be transformed. That's the answer. It's real simple. Yes, God can use people. Yes, God can use political leaders. Yes, I get all of that. But it starts with a deeper foundation. And you and I are the answer to our own country. You and I are the answer to this province and all of its difficulties and dilemmas. You and I are the answer to our community and and into our own personal lives. If we would humble ourselves and turn from our wicked ways, God will hear our cry and actually do a powerful work. Do you know what happens when you have a real revival? People turn back to God and they repent of their sins and their lives are changed. And then the fruit of that is the unbelieving community go, wow, what happened to you? Right? I got right with God. And people can see the transformation in your life. You become a living witness to them. Isn't that powerful? That is powerful. So I want to just say this to all of us, young and old. You know, I have watched so much change in our nation, not for the good. As I'm aging, I'm watching how quickly, you know, we're beginning to morally decay and deteriorate. You know, on these articles, they, they thought, you know, they were trying to come up with political ideologies, and I'm going, that's, not, that's the last thing we need, because we haven't got to the root issue, and it's a spiritual one. We need to get back to God. It's real simple. And so I'm entreating you as your pastor, as we begin 2019, that we would say, okay, I'm making room for God in my life this year. I, you know, some of you, you're already there. You've already made room for God. You already are a daily Bible reader. You already are putting God first in your life. And when we call for times of prayer and fasting, you're there. 
But you know what? Wouldn't it be awesome? Like we sometimes have up to 200 people come. Wouldn't it be awesome if this year we just shattered that and more and more people came to prayer and fasting than ever before because they said, you know what? I'm going to set the right course for my life in 2019. I'm going to put God first. And I'm going to humble myself and I'm going to seek his face. And you know what? There's probably things in my life that I think I'm okay with. And then God goes, no, I'm not okay with it though. And that's hindering you from moving forward. I want you to release that. And you know, there's some things that I would say that are probably morally neutral that God may call you to drop in your life and say, you know what? That's a waste of your time. I have something else for you to do. So don't think that we've all arrived because none of us have. God can easily put his finger on our lives. And if you think you're doing great, wonderful, but just re- I want to remind you, there's things about you and me that we don't even know about ourselves. And that's why the psalmist prays, Search me, O God, and see if there be any wicked way in me. Interesting. We've got to humble ourselves, folks. So I'm going to have a stand this morning. And so, you know, I'm going to just leave it. You know, we have three nights. And I know we, we all have busy lives, and some of you have got plans. But if you could at all decide in your soul, say, you know what? I want to set a pace. I want to set a time. I want to seek his face. I want to let the Spirit of God speak into my life. Maybe just with every head bowed this morning. I'm so happy you're here today. You know, you're, you're the answer to our city. You're the answer to our prophets. You're the answer to our nation. You don't know that. God can do great things but he won't do them apart from us. Isn't that interesting? He's waiting for us, his people. He's waiting for us to join him and partner with him. And I keep thinking of it real simple like this. If I obey, people are blessed. When I disobey, listen to me, then I'm not in the place where I could be a blessing to people. You see what I'm saying? Sometimes it's not even that we're doing wrong or bad or evil things. It's just we're not where God needs us to be and we're not doing what God wants us to do. And so people aren't being blessed around us. I want to be in that place where I'm exactly where God wants me to do and I'm doing His will today and I do it tomorrow and I do it the next day because I know blessing will come, not just in my life, it will come all around me. It'll be a blessing to other people. And you are needed. Don't let anybody tell you differently. You are desperately needed by God. He needs you to step up and say, Lord, I surrender to your will for my life. I want to be used of you. I want to bring blessing. It doesn't have to be dramatic, you know. There's so many ways to bless people. But you got to be in the right place. How many here today with heads bowed just say, you know what? I want to make a fresh surrender, fresh consecration to God today. I want to surrender. I want to lift my hands to God and say, Lord, here's my life. 2019 is just opening up. I want to be all that you want me to be this year. I want to just allow you to work in and through my life. I want your your glory to fall into my home and into my soul, into my family, into my church family, into my community. I just want the glory of God to flow through me and bring blessing to other people. See, I got my hands up. I want God to move supernaturally in our land and destroy the drug addiction and the pornography and all of the things that are so wrong with our world that it's entrapping people's hearts and minds. I want people to be free. I want them to be free. 
Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we're beginning a new year. And we're setting our eyes on you. We're going to seek your face. We're purposing today in our hearts to seek your face. We want to hear your voice. We want to walk in your ways. We don't want to just do our own thing. We're not smart enough. Mark reminded us this morning, we're not to trust in our own understanding. We're to trust in you. Lord, it says not to be wise in our own eyes. We want to know your ways. We want to walk in your ways. We want to walk in your counsel, Father. We want you to use our lives, Lord, to be a blessing in our city, Father. There are things you have in mind for us to do that we don't even have never considered. But as we put ourselves in a place where you are dominant and central and first in our life, you're going to use us in a supernatural way. You're going to flow through us. We're going to see things happen and things are going to be accomplished in and through us that, humanly speaking, it could not be done. But you're going to do it through us. You're going to use us in a supernatural way. We just thank you for that, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you leave.